Hi, friends. Welcome to Reframing Neurodiversity. I'm your host, Melissa Jackson, and I'm here to tell you it's time to see neurodivergence for what it truly is, a gift that benefits us all. As a former teacher, mom to two neurodivergent kids, and as a neurodivergent person myself, I know it's possible to see your neurowiring in a new way. That's why I'm on a mission to reframe the way we view neurodivergence as a collective and to empower us as neurodivergent adults and parents with the language and tools to advocate for ourselves and our kids. Join me each week as my guests and I share our personal experiences paired with cutting edge research, leaving you feeling seen, validated, and proud of the way your brain works. Ready to get started? Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Reframing Neurodiversity Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Alex Reed, who is a clinical pediatric psychologist and specializes in psychological assessments. Alex, I am so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Melissa. I am thrilled. Thank you for taking the time and giving airspace to such an amazing topic I'm going to dig into. Oh my goodness. Yes. And you know, I discovered you, I think I told you this, I heard you first in an interview with Dr. Becky on Good Inside, and you guys were talking about the overlap of neurodivergence, specifically ADHD and deeply feeling kids. And you said something on this episode and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to reach out to this person and talk to them. You mentioned the evolutionary benefits of having a percentage of our kids being neurodivergent and how this actually is something that has happened by design and that we need to take into account in our modern era. Can you talk to me a bit about this as we kick off this conversation? Because I'm just fascinated with this perspective. Oh, I'm so excited that we get to dive into this finally. So like, yeah, I I did the podcast on Dr. Becky and I got some feedback about this too. And so people were really excited about this idea. And I guess it was novel to a lot of people, which is both sad and exciting to me at the same time. So the very term neurodiversity itself was coined by Judith Singer in like 1997-ish. And it was sort of analogous to the theory of biodiversity. So like when we think about like a monoculture, which is like growing the same kind and only kind of corn or wheat on the same plot of land, that crop is more susceptible to disease and it damages the ecosystem around it. And it includes other important variants for the crop's health. Well, with human people, it's kind of the same. So different minds are not just an accident, but a critical form of diversity in the ecological landscape that we live in. They make us more adaptable. They make us more sustainable. One thing, though, that I read Judith Singer did say is that, you know, we want to be careful about overselling the idea of neurodivergent strengths. Now, I think that there are a lot of neurodivergent strengths, and I really want to dig into this topic, but I also don't want people who are neurodivergent to feel like they have to live up (laughs) to all of these strengths, right? They're still people (laughs) with challenges and with strengths, and we don't want to think of them as like superhuman and give them that additional burden, right, to bear (laughs) at the same time. Um, But I do want to dig into some of the strengths with that caveat in mind. So there was this really great article that kind of inspired this for me in the AMA journal. And it was called The Myth of the Normal Brain. And he, I think it was Thomas Armstrong was the author. And he really dug into the idea that, you know, the strengths of neurodiversity can have a whole bunch of different impacts on the workplace. And evolutionarily at large as well. So he talked about, for example, like people with autism spectrum disorder tend to have strengths when working with like systems, like computer language and 
mathematical systems and machines and things like that. And to be better at identifying like tiny details and complex patterns. And so tech companies have begun recruiting folks with autism for tasks like find the deviance in the computer code, right? Or managing databases or things like that. And people with dyslexia, they often have different visual spatial abilities. So like being better at finding the MC Escher impossible objects or uh, in like blurred or low definition scenes, they can better find like the task that needs to be found in that. So they can be beneficial for jobs who require like 3D thinking, like computer graphics or astrophysics or things like that. Absolutely. And then people with ADHD and bipolar disorder too are very, can often be very creative and novelty seekers. But even at, so I work with really high support needs kiddos typically, right? And even at that level, there's still strengths. So folks with Down syndrome and Williams syndrome and Angelman syndrome are often very friendly and very warm. And people with Williams syndrome, for example, seem to have really strong musical abilities. So there's like, there are all of these different benefits. This is amazing. And you know what else? So I know Dr. Armstrong. He was actually one of my professors in graduate school and one of my very favorite teachers, and he he wrote The Myth of the ADHD Child, yeah. and he also yes. wrote The Power of Neurodiversity, and yeah. he's who first introduced me into this idea of, you know, the evolutionary benefit of neurodivergence. And I remember specifically learning from him, he said that, you know, people with ADHD are essentially the hunters in a farmer's world. So genetically, they were designed to be the people who were constantly on the move, that were paying attention to lots of things, who were responding quickly to input from the environment, because that was an advantage, right? But now in our modern world, we label these things as hyperactivity, distractibility, impulsivity. So it brings it back to this, like, okay, if we're genetically predisposed to, like you said, have a certain percentage of the population to have these specific characteristics to benefit us as a whole, as a collective, is this really a disorder? Is this really a disability? Or is it something that has over time become disabling because the modern world is no longer a match for this type of neurowiring? You know, that reminds me so much of the quote from Temple Grandin, who said, like, some guy with high-functioning Asperger's developed the first stone spear. It wasn't the ones who were yakking around the campfire. Right, right. <laughs> and I just, I loved that perspective. And she, for people who don't know, is an autistic activist mm -hmm. as well, who talks a lot about the, the, the benefits and the challenges that come with neurodiversity across the board. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you, you know, at large that the environment that we've created creates a disabled yeah. person, right? And and the other part of this important conversation is that we do live in this world. And so right. as much as we want to support individuals and help, help them thrive, you know, changing the system, dismantling the system and going to, to take time. And so what do we do in the interim, right? And so it's putting the supports that we can in place. And unfortunately, the labels, like we talked about maybe before this podcast of disable or disorder, um, that have such negative connotations are often how people end up advocating for those supports is by comparing the disability to what it's like to live without the disability. And then therefore in that space, we need to create some intervention or accommodation. Absolutely. Um, it speaks yeah. to why the conversation is so complicated because as you know and mentioned, we need these labels in order to receive the services that we deserve, right? So it's like kind of this catch-22 because without the label you don't qualify for the support services. Yet what I see from, you know, the educational lens is these labels tend to burden people with 
identities that maybe don't always line up fully with their authentic selves. Like, like you're mentioning all of these strengths that do exist in the neurodivergent neurowiring can be totally ignored. And it's not to invalidate that it's, there are challenges, especially in our modern world, there are significant challenges. But when we totally ignore the things these people do well and are actually like from evolutionary perspective needed, even today, it just looks a little different. It can impact people's self-confidence and and almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy for some and how they show up because they don't believe in themselves because they've sort of been crushed by the system emotionally, you know, made to feel like they're less than, not as good. They need to be fixed and they're a problem. And I I think that's where I come at it from this reframing piece, not to dismiss the hardship of the experience because it is hard, but what if we shifted the language and is this language serving us? And so I'm just curious from your perspective, I know we come at it from kind of two different fields. You know, how do you feel about it? Is this language, is this disability language referring to people who are neurodivergent with a disability or disorder or deficit? Is that in service or is that a detriment in your opinion? It's a complicated question. The truth is that 85% of people develop in a, a typical way. It's a, a big majority. Yeah. And then so 15 or so percent of other people fall under the neurodivergent category per the DSM, right? And so a significant majority of people are able to sort of move through life without the adaptations, without the other accommodations and do okay. So 15% is still a significant portion. And that's just of people who qualify for a neurodevelopmental disorder across the board. There's still lots of other things too, like anxiety and depression and all of the other categories as well. We need to support those people, right? In this environment that we've created that work for a lot of people. (laughs) And so at the same time that we can't expect, for example, like teachers in a system where you're a single teacher in a classroom of 20 to change everything that you do for like two kids in your class. At the same time, we need to do that. <laughs> and so it's it's very complex. And so how we do that is creating specialized schools or, you know, IEPs that a lot of teachers find burdensome, which I advocate for heartily, unfortunately, for a lot of teachers. And we do what we can do because of the divergence from the norm, which is what neurodivergence is emphasizing, is that it's a divergence from the norm. And so whether we want to refer to that as a disorder, you know, a disorder catches your attention in the sense that if it's disordered, then we need to make it right. And I don't necessarily think that's correct. But when we think of it a disability, which is the legal language that we use around these terms, so disorder is like the clinical language we use, right? A disability is the legal that we use for these terms. And so whether disability, you know, reflects that or not, um, I would argue that it, it it does in a sense, and I can understand why it's marginalizing in the other sense, but we want to reflect that there's a challenge and we need to meet it. And we want people to take us seriously that have the power to make these changes. Yeah. So if other people have better suggestions for how to still delineate the challenges, at the same time, advocate for the humanity of this person and that all of the gifts are still in place, even with the disability, and that they're not mutually exclusive, then I'm all for it. But right now, disability sort of is the one that we have. Um, yeah. But I understand both sides. Yeah, it's almost like it's a necessity based on the system that we find ourselves in now, right? It's yes. a means to support based on sort of the skewed version we have 
of what's happening, to be honest. Like, so it's like, we can't take it away until we've shifted the mindset is what I feel like. Because if we take it away, then these people aren't receiving what they need, as you mentioned, which is 100% valid. I guess for me, it's like the stepping back of even the numbers we have, like that 85%, I think is pretty fluid. Because what I'm finding in my work is so many people later in life are like, oh, wait, I'm neurodivergent. Just because I wasn't identified doesn't mean I'm not neurodivergent or experiencing the world differently, right? And I know just in a recent report I found that came out in 2022, it stated that over 40% of kids in U.S. schools learn differently. So this number is definitely growing. I think as more and more people are becoming more aware of our neurowiring, you know, unless you fell into these very strict categories and got diagnosed, the data is not even actually 100% reflective of what's actually happening in my experience. And what I think needs to shift is this sort of like approach to how we address all kids. So like what actually benefits neurodivergent students benefits neurotypical students. So rather than having this special thing for neurodivergent kids, what if we shifted the way we thought about neurodiversity and brought in this evolutionary perspective, as you and I have been talking about, of like, there's a need for all the things. And what if we validated all the ways? And then if that environment reflected that validation, would we experience it as a disability? But it's kind of this chicken or the egg, right? Like we can't we can't take away the language until we've shifted the viewpoint and the environment to make it equitable, you know? I completely agree. You know, and there are some schools that have, you know, made an inclusive classroom where, you know, they're altering curriculum to some degree. I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. Yeah. But the truth is, is that some kids need a lot of support. And so one curriculum is just not going to work for them. And although it might work for another kid with ADHD, but it won't work for a kid who has severe intellectual disability and a medical Mm -hmm. complexity on top of it. And so it becomes really challenging. And I don't think on the one hand, I don't think the DSM is by any means perfect. And I don't think that the IEP process is by any means perfect. And so we need sort of novel thinkers to find ways to accommodate um, these challenges in the system. And I completely agree that if we could sort of overhaul how school is being done in America in the first place, I mean, many other countries, they don't even start pre-academic skills until they're seven, right? And they're just focusing on the socio-emotional skills. And I think that the education system in general needs a huge overhaul. Uh, But we also can't make people who are neurodivergent like responsible for that, right? And and of course, people who are activated and who want to should. But generally speaking, like they need help (laughs) until we can get there. And so I want to be forward thinking and at the same time, like meet the needs right now for the next person who comes through my office who's like, this is not working. And so we need to do both, right? We need to advocate for change and we also need to offer what we can right now. And unfortunately, the language that we have is what helps advocate. And my whole job is putting people in boxes essentially to help them get the services that they need because that's the best that we have right now. But a lot of countries don't even use that system. It doesn't really matter what your diagnosis is. You can still access all the services that that country has, regardless of your diagnosis. And so we've created a problem and then we've created a solution for that problem by creating another problem, you know, and it's very messy. That's such a great point. So it's almost like the label, the diagnosis, the assessment is the gateway to help. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I feel like a gatekeeper. A the gatekeeper. The yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly. That is really interesting. I've never thought of it in that way. It's tricky and it it's not fair, right? Because it's yeah. whoever has access and the wait lists are 18 months long. And if you can pay more, you can get things faster. You can yeah. get more services. And yes. 
So there's so many inequalities and there's so many barriers. It's just so messy. And so in order to not get bogged down by that, I've sort of embraced the terms that we have, I suppose, in order to just move people along in our system. But at the same time, also need to spend some time advocating for big changes. Right. And then just looking for the strengths that right exist, even if you do have that label, that diagnosis in order to receive the support you need, we can still operate from a strength-based lens at home, at school, even if the classroom's not doing it. So I do think there are baby steps, even though we step back, it is such like a high level conversation and, and so many big things that really have to shift. But on a more granular level, parents really can and teachers really can just start looking at what is this child good at regardless of their label and how can we bring that in more? And I think that from an emotional perspective, is so supportive for kids, no matter what their neurowiring. It's such an important discussion because you come to therapy to work on what's wrong. <laughs> and right. when you're in school, you're pinpointed for what you do wrong. And the whole behavior system in school tends to be like red, green, yellow behavior charts. You tend to get singled out based on your bad behavior. And we really don't spend much time whatsoever thinking about how we can instead meet the function of the behavior, the need, the like the bottom need of that behavior, right? Is it like what's causing it? What's What's actually causing causing this behavior? Instead of punishing that actual behavior, I just feel like we're stepping like five steps too fast. And, and once we focus on that, then we can also focus on their strengths. Like, okay, so this is what's causing their behavior. And what do they have in their personality or their neurotype that we can use to move us in that more pro-social direction or that, you know, less destructive direction, the things that like they like or the things that they're good at. Like, how can we introduce that more in class? You know, we do this thing called an FBA in School of Functional Behavioral Analysis or Assessment that tends to be like really granular and tends to not look at the strengths, right? We're looking at like what the behavior was, what happened right before it and what happened right after it. And we're not taking into consideration the fact that the child might be hungry or that like nobody spoke to that child that morning and they like rushed onto the bus or that they have like the wrong socks on and their mm-hmm. socks seams are off or their pants are wet or all of these other things that mm-hmm. could contribute to the behavior other than like being told no five minutes before and then being labeled defiant for like fighting, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Like what is the internal experience for this kid? And maybe pausing to get a bit more curious about that rather than being so reactive to the outward behavior that we're seeing and then being so quick to put a label on it and react to that and punish. And it's that stepping back and, you know, calming our own nervous system when we're triggered and showing up to hold space for that child. And just that curiosity piece, I think is missing so often. Exactly. Yeah. Curiosity is, is kind of the term that I've latched on to myself as well. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I'm finding that more and more, like, I just keep coming back to this word curiosity and in all the ways it's like, We need to be more curious about what's happening. Is this working? Why is this happening? Just asking those questions. I think that is sort of the simple step forward in creating something new and better that works for more people. It just makes you open, right? If you're curious, you're not punishing, right? You can't, you can't do both, right? You can be curious and then you can think about their strengths and you can think about how best to intervene Mm -hmm. to meet them where they are. But yeah. I feel like curiosity and punishment are, are kind of a, the antithesis of, of one another, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like they can't really coexist. So many families receive a label of ADHD. And in my experience, that can be a complicated label because oftentimes there can be more going on than just the ADHD, especially as we talk about 
twice exceptionality, as you and I both are passionate about. And for listeners who aren't familiar, twice exceptionality, also sometimes referred to as 2E, refers to kids who experience both areas of giftedness and areas of learning differences. And they tend to have these asynchronous profiles where have they have these pockets of high strength along with these pockets of extreme challenge. And so they can be really complex. And I don't know about you, but this subject of giftedness has become more and more interesting to me because I think it's been widely misunderstood about what it means to be gifted and how it can actually coexist with kids who are struggling. And some of the things that are symptoms of giftedness really mimic symptoms of ADHD. And so the two can be very intertwined. Do you experience this in your practice as you identify and support families? Definitely. Yes. Twice exceptional is a colloquial term. It's not a clinical one. We don't use it to diagnose anybody, but it's an umbrella term that we use to informally talk about kids who have both high cognitive abilities are really bright and who are neurodivergent in some way. So in neurodivergence in general, a lot of the time cognitive scores are impacted, but in this twice exceptional group, they typically are not. And giftedness can take many forms beyond like cognitive scores. So it's really hard to measure. What's really important to know, maybe more than the 2E label itself, is figuring out what the strengths are of, like we were saying, of each individual in front of us. So every human has a profile that includes a set of strengths and challenges and ND diagnosis can make the challenges even more pronounced, but the nuance and the strengths are really what we need to look at for a variety of reasons. Yes. And one is the, you know, the evolutionary benefit we were talking about. The, there was a Financial Times article that talked about um, professionals and its autism at work initiative or program. And they found that um, people who were cognitively gifted and had autism made fewer errors and they were like 90 to 100 and some 40% more productive than neurotypical employees. Like, wow, that's mm-hmm. a big number, right? Yeah. And how valuable that could be for so many people. And so there are these really big strengths. And, and at the same time, that same person might go to like a holiday party for their work and need three days to recover because it was so emotionally draining, right? And then we have those struggles. So maybe they can work from home or maybe we can make accommodations. Um, so so there's a lot here, um, but this is a very real profile that I see um, frequently enough that it deserves its own podcast and, and header. <laughs> anyway. And I would argue that it's only a matter of time before it is an official diagnosis and label because it is so legitimate and impacting so, and it's I'm impacting so many more people than we're aware of because the research hasn't caught up to the experience. So I want to also let people know that it can be misleading as well because IQ tests have kind of been our go-to for identifying giftedness and qualifying as gifted. And an actual essential component to giftedness and 2E is this asynchronous development. So if you're averaging scores, which is what we do to receive an IQ score, many 2E kiddos look average. So they're not being identified as gifted because maybe their pocket of intelligence is that 99th percentile visual spatial skill, but they've got a 2% in their working memory or in their phonological awareness. And so we're looking at, oh no, they're just an average student with average needs. When the truth is, no, they're actually a gifted student because what we know now is if you're gifted in one area, you're considered gifted. So that means you're having the gifted experience, which is different than the neurotypical experience. So if you're a gifted person, you're experiencing the world in a more heightened way. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Dabrowski's five overexcitabilities, Mm -hmm. but it's like you're experiencing 
more of everything. You're experiencing this intensity in ways that other people are not. And that requires a unique approach that it requires us to get curious. Like we talked about, about what are your strengths? What's happening? Because if you've got these pockets that you're so superior in, but yet we're treating you like an average student and then wondering why you're having these behaviors that are disruptive and inconvenient and punishing them and not getting curious of, oh, you're having this experience because I think you're an average kid who's a pain in the neck, but you're actually gifted and experiencing the world in this sensory way that's intense. And so I think this is the complicated part of 2E and why so many things can coexist with different neuro wirings. And it's like the pulling the things apart and the the absolute essential piece of getting curious, we just can no longer ignore because it's so much more complex than we've we've previously thought. I mean, and giftedness doesn't even have to just be in academic areas too. No, There's so right. many other areas, the arts and like you said, visual spatial skills tend to be through the roof or musical abilities. Emotional or intelligence. intelligence. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Things that we don't measure in our cognitive tests, you know? Exactly. Um, but I do think in many ways, this is a group that sort of falls in the cracks in so many ways, because with severe presentations, it's easy to like justify pouring resources in the school and at home. But for these kids who are either minimally disruptive, right, or academically gifted, but doing like well enough in the classroom to get by, but then they come home and unravel yes, and have to seem to work twice as hard to just get through their day. Their extra cognitive labor doesn't seem to need support, right? I'm thinking of this girl that I just recently had, the 16-year-old girl who was academically gifted in one area, like through the roof, 99th percentile, and then in the other was in like the second percentile. And what are we going to do for school? We're going to support the one that was in the second percentile, and we're not going to do anything about the fact that she was in the 99th percentile, except for maybe put her in an AP class instead of a regular class. And this girl could thrive, (laughs) right, if she were put in the right courses. So we need to advocate just as much for those who have the discrepancies in these scores as we do for the ones who just are across the board in the lower end of the scores. And giftedness doesn't mean anything in terms of IEP provision or support in school. Like a lot of the time, it doesn't even matter if I see a kid and his IQ is 140 and I send him back to school. So my recommendations and my evaluations will have things that say like, please bring to school and talk about this. And these are different things that school can do, but whether school can actually implement them or do anything with them is school dependent. I love this. And it reminds me so much of, you know, we talk about the deficit model and how we've just historically led with what do kids not do well? Like you're saying, like lead with fixing them, lead with what's not working. And, you know, the more current research is showing that if we can flip flop that and actually look at, okay, what is that pocket? Like you're talking about, okay, they're really good at this thing. If we can bring that into their experience first and try to use that to leverage maybe what's harder. And it's not dismissing what's hard. I mean, I don't want, like you've brought that up too. Like, I don't want to say that that these people aren't having a difficult time thriving in a system that wasn't designed for them because we are. But at the same time, what if we flipped the script and instead of starting with what's not working, we started with what was, and then we use that to guide how we support what isn't. I feel like that is like the game changer. A total game changer, even for the really disruptive kids. Right. I feel like if if every kid came in with like a, a profile that teachers had to evaluate and we just focused on the strengths and, yeah. and and led with that, 
you know, I feel like we would just have such different classroom and we're just talking about the classroom a lot here, but in general, like at home, if we can sort of reframe towards the strengths in general, I think that it would really help target the behaviors in the first place. Like what is, what is the need that we are not meeting here? Um, And by doing that strength-based sort of approach first, then we can get to the the basis here of what's causing the behavior, right? Yes. And you're right. So much of this, we're talking about the school environment, but parents can do this. Don't you think? It's like, just look for what your kid naturally is drawn to. What are they really interested? What are they liking? The curiosity thing comes back again. Just get curious. What are they enjoying? What are they good at? Do more of it, provide more opportunities for it. And I believe those things are there for a reason because we're supposed to be doing more of it. You know, coming back to that evolutionary perspective, there's a reason why we're drawn to the things we're drawn to. There's a reason why we're good at the things we're good at. We need some people to be the hunters and some people to be the farmers. If we're all hunters or all farmers, our society doesn't work. So it's like valuing that even if it seems obscure or seems, you know, outside of the box, that that's a valid strength and interest that deserves time and attention and an opportunity to grow. I mean, the people with dyslexia in prehistoric times were the ones probably trying to figure out where the route was to the best hunting or seeing objects in three dimensions or bringing them to life. You know, I mean, they, those strengths are important <laughs> and not just important, but they're game changers for our future. And so we need them, right? They're, these aren't peripheral. They're not accidental mm-hmm. and, and they're not something that we need to suppress uh, to the contrary. So whether you're a cave mom with a screaming child there or or you're today because you told your child to turn off the tv and they're screaming the screaming is objectively hard no matter what right and i I get that and i want to target that but the more opportunities that we present them to demonstrate their strengths going forward the fewer of those behaviors we're going to have and of course we can't like go around our whole day being like you know (laughs) presenting them with with arts and crafts to to hone those skills. I'm a a pragmatist too. I get it. Um, But the more that we can be intentional about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I'm just thinking of Dr. Armstrong so much in this conversation because he speaks to this so brilliantly. And he talks about how, you know, the ADHD genes are still in the gene pool for a reason because there's an advantage. So if we try to look at that today and apply it to today's world, what are the advantages? You know, I see it as there are innovators, there are creatives, there are are outside of the box thinkers, there are entrepreneurs, you know, they were once our hunters, but now they still serve a purpose. That's why the genes are still that percentage of the population because we need those people. So rather than stifling that creativity, that innovation, that outside the box thinking, what if we honored that it's hard and honored that we need them and validated them and valued them and gave them space? Yes. I mean, they often tend to be like, I may have said it earlier, but the risk takers as well. Once we know that we have this neurotype that leads us in this direction, you know, if we can channel it towards the better, have people help us channel it towards the better, then we can do some really incredible things. There are a lot of really impressive people out there with neurodivergence who are very open about it. Absolutely. Actually, some of our most significant contributors are neurodivergent. You know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, John Lennon. I mean, the list goes on and on of people whose school didn't work for them. They actually right. dropped out of school and they went on to contribute in this way and not in spite of their neurodivergence, but because of it. So my perspective is like, if we can reframe that this is an essential piece that we need 
collectively as a society mm -hmm. to grow and we can create environments that normalize and give equal opportunity to different neurowiring, how would we experience the world? How would we experience our neurotypes? Would we feel as disabled if we were given an equal access to all the things and we were valued and honored for what we do? Because all people have strengths and weaknesses. So it's not to say no matter what your neurowiring, it's never easy. <laughs> we all have our stuff. But what if we created a more equitable environment? How would we then feel in it? You know? Exactly. It's finding the strengths without being Pollyanna-ish about it, right? Yeah. Not overselling, like we said at the very beginning, like Judith Singer always said, we don't want to oversell these strengths to make people think that they have to become Mark Zuckerberg, right? right. Not a lot of people are going to be Mark Zuckerberg, but that doesn't mean that in your day-to-day, -day, we can't hone those strengths to make you thrive given your neurowiring, where right now it feels like all you're doing is struggling. It does not have to be that way. No, it doesn't. You right. have a quote, and I wrote it down from when you were talking with Dr. Becky, and I think it's brilliant, and I'm going to read it back to you. You said, while divergent is a normal variation that's beneficial to society, these symptoms become disabilities in an ableist world. Yeah. Do you remember saying that? I do remember saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so good. I wrote it down. I'm like, yes. <laughs> One of my favorite thought leaders, Jonathan Mooney, talks about this. He says that people with differences experience the world in a disabling way because we've basically institutionalized ableism. So I just love that you brought this piece in. It's like this, this institutionalizing the right good way to be makes a certain percentage of the population, therefore, the wrong way to be. And that's a problem. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, again, I said it on Dr. Becky, I don't think we all need to go live on a farm, right, where mm -hmm. where everything is peaceful. Like, there are ways to make this happen here. Yep. Um, but we just have to be intentional about that. And the first step, I think, is understanding your wiring, which I think is yes. why the evaluation itself is so important. A good evaluator is going to look at all of your strengths and weaknesses and then give you recommendations uh, that are tailored to you, right, to help yeah. you capitalize on the strengths and then accommodate the challenges. And so it can start at a personal level for you or your child, right? As understanding those strengths and weaknesses and having a professional sort of look at that is I think the first entryway. I mean, of course you can recognize their strengths and weaknesses, but sometimes it helps to have somebody else look at it and measure them with some good tools that we have out there. And then they can implement recommendations and then you can implement those recommendations in your day-to-day -day life. But yeah. in terms of creating an ableist uh, world, we have done that time and time again, not just with neurodivergence, but there's always a norm and it always leaves out the marginalized groups. And unfortunately, neurodivergence is just no exception. So we have to keep pushing in the ways that we can. And I think that leading with strengths-based language and curiosity is a, a revolutionary move. I really do. Yeah. And, and I don't want to undersell the power of that mm -hmm. in schools and, and at home that that could just have on its own. I totally agree with you. Thank you so much, Alex. I am so happy that I have a resource now that I can share out to people of a neurodiversity <laughs> affirming psychologist who provides assessment and feedback to parents in ways where you do identify their strengths and you do provide real concrete information about their profile and you look at what they're doing well and how we can bring that in. So thank you for doing what you do. I'm so thank happy to have you on the show today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. So I know that you have a new Instagram account where you're sharing resources with people and you're also a mentor for neurodivergent families at Good Inside as well as providing evaluations. Can you let us know how can people get in touch with you and is there anything else we should know about what you offer? 
I just started an Instagram page because of the need that I felt was out there for parents kind of in this limbo, not knowing if they needed support or not. My handle is Dr. Underscore Alex Underscore Reed. Um, and you're welcome to follow along. I didn't create it with any intent to sell anything. It's just to support. Um, and they're always welcome to send me a message. And I'm on the Good Inside community, like you said, um, with Dr. Becky too, helping parents in that community as well. And my practice is at a hospital where I see children every day. And so I have a lot of connection to the real life challenge as well. And so I hope to speak to it more in my page. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here and doing what you do and just providing these amazing resources that are so needed for families. Thank you, Melissa. It was such a pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember to subscribe and review so you don't miss a thing. Is your child struggling to thrive in their current classroom setting? Then you need to head to the show notes to snag my free shareable pamphlet for your child's teacher. It breaks down how to create equitable learning environments for all students based on the leading research in the field of neurodiversity. Because what benefits neurodivergent students benefits all kids.